Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Robbie Riggs. Welcome to the Way I See It podcast. This show provides a safe space for anyone to share their thoughts, stories, and opinions. Let's get into today's episode. And welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Robbie Riggs, as always. Today, I have an amazing, amazing guest that I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy. So today, I have on Sadie Kyler, who is a podcast production assistant. She is a mental health advocate, and she is also the host of the She Persisted podcast. Today, Sadie and I go into detail about her mental health experiences, what she experienced, how it impacted her childhood, and so much more. Now, I do want to say that this episode might be triggering to some listeners because she does go into a little bit of her experience in teen behavioral modification programs and stuff like that. So if this episode is triggering to you, I would highly suggest to not listen to this episode if it triggers you. However, I'm excited for it. So let's get into it. All right, what's up, everyone? So in this episode, we do talk a little bit about suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicide or need some emotional support, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Again, that number is 1-800-273-8255. All right, so honestly, thanks so much for coming to hang out with me for like... I don't know, an hour or however long we talk. <laughs> of course, of course. Thank you for having me. No worries. You're so, for a 17-year-old, are you still 17 or are you 18 mm-hmm. now? Yeah. So you're still 17? Yes. Okay, wow. For a 17-year-old, I tell you, Alexis is right. For a 17-year-old, you are very mature for your age. I wish I was as mature as you are at 17. Oh. <laughs> at 17 I was uh battling terrible anxiety and I didn't know my left foot my my left foot from my right one so <laughs> you know you're just so so inspiring to me in so many different ways thank you um I first heard about you on Alexis's uh show mm-hmm. and you know, that was the very first time. And I'm just like, when I found out, when I found out you had a podcast, I was like, Oh my God, like, I have to check it out. And as soon as I check it out, I'm like, I have to have you on. And so, (laughs) you know, you're just, you just break so much, so many barriers in so many different ways. So um, I'm going to shut up now and let you kind of (laughs) tell, (laughs) tell, tell your story, because I think the audience would rather hear from you than me. They hear from me every week. So um Let's start off. Let's start off from the beginning. What led you to actually? Let's start from the part where you know you uh, you know that you found out. Okay, this is not like I'm 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 deeply suffering here. How did that all start up? Yeah. So I was kind of navigating the world for years through the lens that everyone really struggled with depression um, and anxiety, and everyone kind of hated every day and everyone just experienced the same reality as me. And beyond that, I could understand that other people did enjoy things, they did love life, but I was very deeply rooted in the idea that that was impossible for me and that treatment wouldn't work for me. I It just wasn't in the cards for me to be happy or not struggling. Um, and so, when I was kind of navigating treatment early on, it was really through that mindset that it wasn't going to work for me. Um, I understood that maybe it would work for other people, but it just wasn't in the cards for me. And so I had that first belief that what I was experiencing was normal and that every teenager was struggling a lot with depression and anxiety. And even that what I was experiencing, I didn't realize that that was depression um, and that I was really struggling with that. So when I did come to that realization and when I did start kind of on my treatment journey, I, um, I again, was still very firmly rooted in the mindset that things wouldn't change. And so I did a bunch of different outpatient programs and did some different things locally. Um, and nothing was really changing. I was still really struggling with depression, still struggling with a lot of different behaviors associated with that, struggling with anxiety. And about a year, maybe a year and a half after I began that treatment journey at home, I went to Boston for four months and I went to intensive residential treatment and I got to that meeting 
um, where they kind of talk to you for the first time, a little bit of an intake meeting. And one of the first questions that they asked me was if I wanted to be there. And I was like, no brainer. Of course, I don't want to be here. Um, I've just moved all the way across the country. Um, I don't know anyone here. This isn't going to work. No, I've been told I have to be here because again, at that time I was 14, but I didn't think that I, I didn't want to be there. I didn't think it would work. And so they were really clear with me and they were like, here's the thing. Everyone that you see here at this program is here because they want to be here and because they believe it works. And we would love to have you. We know for a fact that we can help you and we can, we can help change your life so that you're no longer experiencing depression and anxiety and teach you the skills to do that. But you can't be here unless you now, see the Now, I just want to, I just want to reiterate, was that the, um, was that the teen behavior modification or was that a normal? No, so that was before. That's another super interesting thing is that I've had kind of a spectrum of experiences with treatment, which I think gives me a pretty unique perspective and that I full heartedly believe in adolescent treatment. It can save people's lives. It does save people's lives and it can be so, so effective. And there's the other end of the spectrum, which I also got to experience and that it can be really traumatic and it can be really disruptive. And sometimes the cons don't outweigh the pros depending on how you're approaching it. So this was my first four months of intensive treatment and it was an amazing experience. Um, and they told me that going back to that conversation, they told me that I couldn't be there unless I saw the wisdom in the treatment and that I, I did believe that it was possible and I was willing to really try and put my all into it and put my trust into these people that I've never met before, but understand that there was research backing this and that these skills had been tested and um, worked with hundreds of teens that struggled with depression and anxiety just like me. And the other part was really cultivating enough self-love to want to get better and to love myself enough to want to live a better life and to want to experience that happiness, which was so foreign to me at that time. So that four months of intensive treatment, um, I did tons and tons of tons of learning skills and building a relationship from the ground up with my parents, beginning to understand what was going on when I was experiencing anxiety, um, navigating my depression, and really just putting some behaviors in place like sleeping through the night and getting enough rest and having like a meal schedule that was keeping me on track. So I was decreasing my emotional vulnerability to these things like depression and anxiety that was just getting so exacerbated when I was at home and all of those things were kind of getting off of track. Um, so that was what I did during those four months. And so as I'm sure you can imagine, going back home into an environment where I'd been severely depressed for years, after just briefly getting out of that depression would have been super overwhelming. I wanted to go home. I really, really did. And I was so upset when I was told that that wasn't an option at that point. And so that's when I um, went to a therapeutic boarding school for, I think it was 14 months. Um, and that was the summer before my sophomore year until the end of my sophomore year. Um, so a bit over a year that I spent there. And that was, again, continuing to build a relationship with my parents, continuing to just solidify that work. Um, and I made some amazing friendships there that I still keep in touch with today. But yeah, that was kind of where my treatment journey led me. And a lot of the work that I did that allowed me to kind of, I guess if the word would be recover from depression and anxiety was just rewiring core beliefs and creating habits and patterns that supported this new mental state, which was not feeling depressed all the time and not feeling anxious. So I went from initially believing that I wasn't deserving of love or care to believing that I was and, and seeing the world through that lens of I deserve these relationships and connections and love and support from everyone around me. Um, and then navigating my relationship with my parents instead of like believing that I'll never be good enough for them and that I'll never get to this place where I am up to their standards, even if that was just something I was putting in my head and I was instead seeing it through a lens of they love and care about me just as I am and how I'm behaving or acting or performing doesn't change that love. Um, and so it was a lot of that. And then just really working on relationships, my parents, really us learning how to validate each other and interact more effectively. And then with friends, building really authentic connections where I felt seen and heard and could get support. So, yeah. That's, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. I mean, it takes a lot of 
maturity to be able to go through these to this to these treatment centers <clears throat> because the thing that people sometimes think is that once they get to these treatment centers that the treatment centers are going to do all the work and it's like no if you want to be if you want to live a good mental health life then you have to put in some sort of the work in fact probably you may be able to correct me on this but you probably have to put in 90% of the work don't you yeah it's completely true and i think that a huge difference between the first and second program that i went to was kind of the involvement of my family and i think what's really unique about adolescent treatment is you're trying to get the child in most cases back home and back into that environment in a way that they can thrive and so in adults, I think the the changes that you're making, the relationships you're building are much more centered on the individual. But it's really, really hard to get an adolescent to get back home and back into that environment if you're not working as a family to rewire these patterns and build a really healthy relationship so that the the teen can thrive at home instead of just relapsing into whatever behaviors or, or emotions that they were experiencing before. And so I think that was a huge shift between my first program and my second program um, as far as how much my parents were involved the first one we would do weekly family therapy um they would come and visit me every weekend and then another huge thing was that every single week they would attend a group with the other parents who had kids in the program and they would learn the exact same skills that i was learning every day so while i was learning how to do deep breathing to regulate panic attacks they were learning how to do deep breathing to regulate themselves when we were getting into an argument or something like that and so it was a really really unique approach and it helped a lot in in building that relationship um, and repairing it from where it was at initially but i i do completely agree with you that the the work has to be done by the individual and nothing is going to be sustained if you're not motivated to do the work and you're not authentically doing it and i i noticed that as a huge difference between when i was quote unquote going to therapy or doing work when i was at home initially versus when i went away to treatment because again when you're taking out of your home environment and you're put in treatment for such a long period of time like it's not possible to just go through the motions and check the boxes. Like at some point you'll quote unquote break. And I hate like using that phrase because it sounds so negative, but at some point you're gonna have to authentically do the work because you can't just pretend for that long of a period of time. And so it's, it's very true that a huge part of the work is done by the individual and you're supported by an amazing group of um, doctors and clinicians and your family and friends, but nothing is going to be long lasting or sustainable unless, unless you're doing the work authentically. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I find it pretty admirable that your parents were willing to do the work because I don't know how you feel about this, but this show is about unfiltered opinions. So if you want to share your opinion, you're more than welcome to. <laughs> um, but you see all these parents who go on shows like, you know, Dr. Phil, for example. And they say that, like, you know, my child is this, my child is so bad, my child is. But the question comes up, what are you doing? <laughs> What are you yeah. doing? You're not doing anything. All you're doing is just being like, oh, my child is so bad. My child is so bad. But it's not a child's problem. It's not a parent's problem. It's mm -hmm. a family problem. It's a family thing that needs some sort, of, some sort of attention to it. It can't just be, you know, one person. So I was, I was just curious, what's your kind of opinion on that? Like, do you think like, do you think it is a family problem or do you think like that some kids are to blame for some of their, some of their things? Because I don't think it's just, I don't think you can blame suffering on, on anybody really. Yeah. So I have two kind of different positions that I come, want to come at this with. One is that I so firmly believe that no one ever has the parents that they 100% want or need. 
And it doesn't matter how amazing your relationship is or how effective your communication is. We're not great at voicing our needs and our unmet needs. And a lot of the time we don't even realize what those are, whether it's connection or validation um, or even just like a shoulder to cry on. Like we're really bad at advocating for those. And our parents are human. They make mistakes. They're flawed. They're struggling in their own ways. And so we're never going to have this perfect, amazing super parent that is 100% meeting our needs all the time. And I think that's one, one part of um, kind of navigating that treatment journey is kind of accepting that. And then being like, okay, what are the measurable steps that I can take to improve my relationship, whether it's communication or advocating for to get your needs met or validating your parents so that you can have a more effective, healthy relationship. And so that's, I think, one point, part to keep in mind. Um, the other thing that I want to mention is that I have so much compassion for those parents who are on shows like Dr. Phil or who make the decision to send their kids to a wilderness program. And it's not that I agree with that decision because I so firmly do not. It's that they're being told exactly what they're trying to hear, that it's not their fault that their kid is struggling, that they are exhausted and that's being seen, and that someone has a solution. So if you, you see your kids struggling, that's the worst possible thing you can imagine is to see them in that pain and to imagine that you might have caused it. Like imagine how much pain that causes you. Um, and so parents will kind of go different directions with that, whether it's to deny or to, um, to kind of feel a lot of like shame around that. So that's kind of, they'll approach that differently. But when a company is coming to you and saying, we know how exhausted you are, we have a solution, and your child's behavior is not your fault, of course, parents are going to eat that up. They're going to be you're like, gonna yes. Want, as a parent, you're going to want to be like, oh my God, help? Wow. Exactly. And so you're marketing to these ex emotionally exhausted like parents that are equally suffering because they see how much pain their child is in. And unfortunately, a lot of these programs within the troubled teen industry that are marketing in this way aren't really using evidence-based treatments. These programs can cause more trauma than good. Um, and there's not a lot of insight that the parent gets into the treatment that the child's getting. And again, there's that huge disconnect between the individual's work and the family's work. Um, and so you see that in wilderness programs or behavior modification programs, therapeutic boarding schools, and some residentials. And so I have so much compassion, again, for these parents because they're being told exactly what they want to hear and they have no way to know otherwise because so many parents are going through this for the first time. You never expect to have to send your kid away for treatment. You never expect to have to navigate that journey and yet that's the cards that they're dealt. And as much as it is on the individual to do the work, especially when you are at home as a teenager, your family environment is a huge, huge, huge part of your emotional state. And so I think it's it's definitely both on the teen um, as far as what behaviors they're engaging in, their ability to advocate for their needs, their willingness to improve the relationship, and the family members to also make changes so that their child feels supported and validated and safe at home. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing too, is that like, I know for me, whenever I'm vulnerable and I hear someone, I mean, I'm not a parent by any means, but I can say that I can understand where parents could be coming from and where young adults and kids like you could be coming from because mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, you know, I get, whenever I get bad anxiety attacks, it's like, I get vulnerable. And if someone were to tell me, you know, uh, a crazy thing like oh come stay with me in some other country you don't know them but at the same time you're not in your right state of mind you don't understand exactly. that this could mean danger and that's you know I can tell you in my in my own in my own personal life you know I met somebody who um is I mean she's a nice person but she's a lot she's a lot older than me and you have to be careful as people with mental health issues. And I feel like we have to be a little bit more careful as the average person because we can easily become, you know, I don't want to speak for you or anybody else here, but I can honestly say that I can honestly become super, super, um, you know, I can get very attached to that person. Mm -hmm. And I have had that happen to me before where 
even to get someone on this, even when this podcast first started, you know, I, when I first started the show, I mean, it was almost as if I wanted something that I never got from my real life, which was connection. And what I would do, because I got so attached to people, I would say off the bat, well, can I have your number? And it's like, for a lot of people, that's not, they don't feel comfortable with that. But I didn't understand that because I was so mentally, I just couldn't handle my own self. I couldn't handle being in my own skin with my anxiety, trying to cope with it, you know? So I can understand where parents are coming from. And I can understand what you said about being in a position where even though the situation might not be right, you want, you don't, you're, you just want, you just, you just want help. You're just desperate. That's all you want. You don't want a magic cure. You don't want a magic wand. All you want is, all you want is just some basic sort of help. That's pretty much all you really need. Yeah. And you're dealing with such, again, vulnerable population on both the side of the parents and the teens. So the parents haven't ever been through this before. They don't know what red flags to look for, and they're being told exactly what they want to hear. And then once you're in the treatment world, you're these adolescents who are already struggling with mental health issues. So they're vulnerable on that front. They're underage. They cannot advocate for themselves legally. Their parents are the ones that sign them into these programs. They can't take themselves out. Um, They might have a history of lying or having negative behaviors that they've engaged in, which is completely understandable because of the mental health issues that they're dealing with. Um, And so all of these things really damage their credibility and ability to advocate for themselves. So when you're in these treatment situations, especially wilderness programs, you can't get on the phone and call your parents and say, I'm not safe. Um, I'm emotionally being hurt or physically because you don't have access to a phone. That's not a privilege that you get. Um, And any of these claims are easily wiped away um, because again, there could be history of lying. You're an adolescent, your mental health isn't necessarily sound. And so this population is just so, so vulnerable and there's not enough precautions being taken to protect their their safety and optimize for effective treatment. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, what would you say for people like myself who are dealing with attachment issues, like what I just described to you, uh, bef- you know, as I was saying before about, you know, wanting, you know, feeling like you can't live without somebody or feeling like, you know, you, that person needs you because ultimately that's, that's basically what we want. Mm-hmm. You want to be needed, but yeah. we're not needed. So like, what would your advice be to anyone like me out there who is dealing, you know, I'm a lot better, but for someone like me who's dealing with attachment issues or wanting to make that connection right away and feels bad if the person rejects it and who is just suffering so much with their mental health, what would your advice to that person be? Yeah, I think there's two parts. One is really a lot of self-validation and getting a lot of that kind of what you would get from that other person, which is validation, support, and care, and kind of looking inwards for that. So if you're looking for that other person to tell you that you're needed, finding that from yourself. Like yourself needs you to advocate for you and to make good decisions that put you on the right path um, and build relationships that help you feel supported and connected. Um, If you're looking to the other person for validation, when you're experiencing emotions that are uncomfortable um, or that you're, you're kind of overwhelmed by having that validation of this is really overwhelming and I don't know how to handle this and it's totally okay that I'm feeling this way and kind of just talking to yourself like you would talk to someone else. Um, And then I, and then self-love as well. And so if you're looking to that other person for that love and care and support, kind of cultivating that for yourself. Um, And I would also kind of approach it from the side of um, kind of distancing yourself from that other person when it does become an unhealthy or kind of codependent relationship. Um, It's really hard to undo those patterns when you're still actively in that relationship. So instead, kind of distancing yourself from from, from unhealthy relationships, leaning on others for support on how to build a healthier relationship, 
and then kind of starting fresh and, and getting more practice on what those healthy relationships can look like um, and how to navigate those. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, a great podcast to listen to for that is Recovering from Reality. For those who don't know, I'm going to plug you here. Sadie is actually Alexis Haynes' assistant. Mm-hmm. And that must be so amazing working for Alexis Haynes. Like, how does it feel to be the assistant of one of the most, I think, empathetic young women I've ever come across in all of my life? I've never met, I never heard anyone speak like that in all of my years of living. And I've lived 22 years on this earth. Yeah. And I've I mean, never heard anyone speak yeah. the way she does. It's just so, it's just so amazing. So how does it feel to work with someone like that? Yeah. I mean, I initially approached it very much from like the podcast production side of things. Like that's what I love doing. And that's kind of what I had some expertise in. And so that's kind of how I approached her. I'd never listened to the podcast before um, I started working with her. Um, and really just wanted to learn more about the industry and, and help support her on that side of things. But she has such an interesting, um, interesting approach to how she's kind of navigated, done the work, and now is using what she's learned to help other people. And so I think it's so unique and rare to have gone through so much trauma in, in one's lifetime and then be able to completely turn that around and, and share that wisdom with other people. So yeah, the work she's doing is amazing with Aloe, with Recovering From Reality, the Life Reset course. There's so many things that she's doing. Yeah, and um, this is where we dive into the societal impact of our conversation because I, want, I wanted to talk about this so much because I myself have so many, have so much to say about it. Um, I first want to start off with, with, with how do you think that society is handling mental health issues today? Do you think that they're doing, like, do you think that they're doing all they could do? Or do you think that maybe there needs to be a little bit more work done to it? Like, how, what's your, what's your standpoint on that? Yeah, I think we've definitely made leaps and bounds. Like we're getting to a point where we're talking more about mental health and it's not as stigmatized when we look at mental health treatment a century ago versus today. It's just black and white as far as the difference that differences between those two things. Um, I think it's really something that's really lacking is kind of awareness and education as far as the steps that need to be taken when someone is struggling. I know when I first started treatment, um, my parents and I were just kind of like stumbling blindly. Like we didn't know what are the first steps? Who do you look for to look to for support? Um, do you go to residential? Do you go to a therapeutic learning school? Like there's just, unless you're really entrenched, entrenched in that industry, it's really hard to know what steps to take, who to talk to, um, and, and how to get really effective evidence-based treatment. Um, I think one of the most amazing things about treatment is that you are really in a bubble with people that are very aware and, um, they want to change, they're willing to change, and they're actively working on themselves. And so I remember when I was at residential and everyone was putting the skills um, of mindfulness and interpersonal effectiveness um, and emotion regulation and all these different skills to work on a daily basis. And you're just able to interact so much more effectively, have such authentic, amazing connections. Um, and, and so I wish that people were taught in school things like staying present um, and being able to effectively advocate for yourself, how to build relationships, um, how to cope with intense emotions, how to decrease the number of like crises that you have, um, and how to cope with a crisis when it comes up. And so I think there's a huge kind of um, lack of education there around how to deal with mental health issues, how to kind of decrease the likelihood of them, um, and then what to do to navigate the treatment world. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, uh, I love what you said about schools, because schools are, you know, they, they try their best to teach kids, you know, one plus one is two, two plus two is four, but they never teach kids about boundaries. They never yeah. teach kids about you know, anything like that. I mean, North America alone, it's like, they don't teach, they don't teach much to be able to get by. It's like you learn 
you learn as you grow up. And for some kids, that is very difficult, especially, you know, some hell, some young adults, it's even so difficult to like, to like get to where they want to be. So it's like, I can only imagine what it would be like as a depressed child. Um, yeah. Because they don't, they don't teach you much to survive. They teach you the minimum that they have to, and that's that. Um, now, I will say, and this is why I was so excited to have this, the industry I'm thinking of going into when it comes to education, this brought up a very good point. I am thinking of going into voice acting. Mm-hmm. And voice acting is a very fun industry, but as I started to dig deeper, you know, joined a voice acting hub, all those things, I started to realize the uneducated, uh, the uneducation the un- involved when it comes to mental health, even if they are educated about it, it's not something that's talked about. And one of the things that really disturbed me, and I want to know what, and I want to get your opinion on this is if you want to get into promo, like promoting movies and TV shows and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. They say that you just have to, you're on demand 24 hours. You have to be just at their beck and call and it's like that is humanly impossible (laughs) Mm -hmm. that is humanly impossible to do and I don't know if I'm like not hearing it properly or just misrepresenting it but you know that does not sound right to me as someone who's gone through mild you know a generalized anxiety disorder who still suffers with a generalized anxiety disorder that's just telling someone like me, you know, screw it. If you have mental health issues, fuck it. You have to do what we want you to do. You have to be perfect. And that's the thing is in the industry, I'm thinking of going into voice acting. You have to always be, everything has to be spot on. You have to always blow people away. And it's just, I never realized it before, but as I'm starting to watch more videos about it and really studying it, I'm really starting to see, in my opinion, the unhealthy patterns that come up for a lot of people in that, in that. And it's, it's sad because there's, it's, it's an older dominated field. Like there's not, there's not many young people like us and there has to be, there has to be young people to say, you know what, we, this is not healthy, but no one's doing that. So I don't know. I just thought I would share that a little bit. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think it makes me also think of like the medical industry as well. Um, Especially I used to want to be a doctor. I was super into like Grey's Anatomy and like all these kinds of shows. And they would talk a lot about being an intern and how you're on call for, I don't even remember how many hours a week. It was like a crazy amount. Um, And within that field, they've kind of done a lot of more regulations as far as how many hours you can be in the hospital before you need to take time off and how many hours you can be on call before you need to take time off because we know things like sleep so dramatically impact our performance and so um, I definitely do think especially within the schooling system as well there needs to be a lot more um, emphasis on getting good sleep and getting enough sleep because your performance your relationships your mental health everything just suffers when you're not taking care of your basic physical needs whether that's nutrition um exercise getting enough sunlight getting outside um sleeping and so i i completely agree that those basic needs need to be prioritized because everything else truly crumbles without them yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um so I mentioned before that I struggle with generalized anxiety disorder. I just mentioned it. Um, I have always struggled with it for most of my life. And someone, because the one thing that I always notice is like blind people are, blind people are 80% unemployed. Mm -hmm. 80% of us are unemployed. And that scares me, you know, that scares me to think that I could, that I am part of that statistic. And it's almost like, 
when it comes to people with disabilities, I can honestly tell you that a lot of my friends who have disabilities, their mental health is suffering so much in this, in this COVID, in this COVID time. And, you know, even Alexa said a lot of her, a lot of, you know, she's even suffering a lot. So, you know, I feel that, you know, telling people to sit in their houses and keep the doors locked is not very effective. It's not very helpful because they're not taking, no one's taken into account. Okay. People's mental and physical health are suffering for this. And you cannot be healthy without your mental health in check. So it's like, you know, you're having these people like on the news, for example, tell you things that like, oh, you have to stay locked down and the government's telling people they have to stay locked down. And it's like, okay, but making people so petrified that they're killing themselves, making people so, so sad and so depressed that they're committing suicide. Like these things are not something that know that the media or the government is even really talking about unless it's a commercial or something but yeah you know it's just really sad that like you know it's just really sad that people just don't understand that we that just mental health is important and no one's really especially from the government side or a politician side no one's really talking about it especially you know you know in, in north america I, I, I agree. I think we're definitely lacking in media coverage um, as far as the mental health impacts and awareness of resources, especially during during the pandemic. I think, it again, like with everything in life, it's balance. And so the cards we're being dealt right now is for public safety as a whole. We're quarantining. We're staying inside. We're adjusting our lifestyles to protect the more vulnerable people in our society, whether that's people that are immunocompromised or elderly. Um, and even like we're both young um, as teenagers, young adults, like um, we necessarily may not be as physically impacted by the virus, but spreading it and and coming into contact with other people could be really detrimental. So creating balance with with things, with the cards we've been dealt. So yes, we're inside a lot more. So how can we counteract that? Is that doing more Zooms? Is that going on more walks? Is that getting a pet? Is that having a roommate? I'm really lucky that I live with my family. And so there's six of us and we have two dogs. And so we're able to interact a lot and still get that kind of socialization even when we're at home. Um, Is it spending more time doing things you love? Like baking or um again being on the phone with friends um listening to podcasts that you really enjoy and so before a lot of these things that help our mental health were more built into our lives whether it was seeing people at work or going out on a like to get coffee and you see people there and so things like social socialization were a lot more built into our lifestyles. And so now that we're a lot more isolated, we have to be much more intentional about creating that balance and bringing that back. Um, so I think, I think it's definitely, um, it's, it's of course not the best hands set up the best. I don't even know what I'm trying to say. It's not the greatest deck of cards that we've been dealt right now. And what decisions can we make to optimize for our own mental health while also being aware of um, public health and others' physical health? Yeah, exactly. I feel like, yeah, I, I love what you said there about balance. Like, there has to be some sort of balance when it comes to these things because, you. I mean, yes, like you said, you have to protect people who are sick. Because, you know, you have to protect the more vulnerable. That's just, you can't get away from that. Mm-hmm. But you also have to say, you know, we also have to make some decisions on, okay, am I going to let this bother me? Or am I going to let this, you know, tear me down? Because, like, to be honest, I had nothing to do in quarantine. So I'm like, why not just restart back up this podcast again? Because mm-hmm. I know how many people I can impact. And it's a mem- it's a thing of blending blind and sighted people. And it's like, I know how many people I can probably impact. I'm not going to expect a high turnover of listeners, but whoever wants to listen can listen. Whoever doesn't, doesn't. And yeah. 
it's like, that's what I feel like you do on your podcast as well. It's, I don't feel like you really try to uh, put yourself out there for everyone to uh, like you. And neither does um, Lauren and Michael, the skinny confidential, they don't do that either. And I feel like, you know, as a podcaster, you can't do that because you're gonna, you're gonna say something, maybe something you said could turn people off right now in this conversation, (laughs) you know, maybe something I said can turn people off in this conversation. But if you're not true to who you are, you're never going to feel like you accomplished much at all, especially in this medium. Yeah. And I think, especially with podcasting, you have a potential to reach such a large audience that is your views are going to identify with some people. And so I'm really passionate about mental health and advocating for taking control of your life and making changes so that you don't have to suffer from depression and anxiety. Um, And some people might not agree with that. They might think that it's completely like I used to think that if you're dealt that deck of cards, like that's just how your life is meant to be and you're destined to not experience anything else. And so um, the nice thing about podcasting is that there's such a large potential audience and that when you're your authentic self, you will resonate with some people and you will make those connections. Um, And because you're being so true to what you believe, you're, it'll just be so much more powerful than if you're kind of, kind of blending in with what everyone is saying and um, just agreeing with everything. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So when it comes to parents, Mm -hmm a lot of young people have troubles with their parents, Mm -hmm. even though we don't mean to, we do. It's a normal family thing and it just happens. So I was wondering what advice do you have or what can you give teens or young adults that are just having, you know, troubles with their parents, having a little bit of arguments, not seeing eye to eye because, uh, (laughs) I've been there before. (laughs) Yeah, um, I think one of the most powerful skills that I learned um, during my time in treatment, which resonated with me and my parents, was something called validation. And it's really simple, but it can be really difficult to implement. And especially in relationships where you like don't want to like, where you don't want to like lose your side of things when you're in an argument, you don't want to agree that you're wrong, like that kind of a thing. So validation is the idea that you are giving the space for what someone else is experiencing. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to validate. You don't have to say the way they're acting is okay, but you're saying, I see your emotions. That emotion is valid and okay. And, and I'm here for you. And I see that. And so with my parents, if we're having an argument and I want to go, this is definitely a pre COVID example, but I want to go out with my friends. My mom's like, no, you can't. Um, I don't know why she, I'm trying to think of like, because it's been so long since I've like asked something like that because of COVID, but she's like, no, you can't, um, we're doing a family dinner. So I would be able to validate her by saying, I completely understand that you are sad because I'm going off to college soon and you are sad that I'm not prioritizing this family dinner. And I completely understand that. And I see that. And I just want you to know that I, I understand that. So if she was validating me, she would say, Sadie, like, I completely understand that you want to spend time with your friends and you are sad because you miss them. You haven't seen them a lot recently. And so I completely understand that. So it goes both ways. You validate the emotion there. You get curious about what that emotion is and you create space for it. And so when you're able to kind of offer the other person that validation, they became a, come a lot more open to kind of reaching compromise, um, being able to get to a point where you guys can get on the same page. And it also strengthens the relationship. You have a stronger connection. It's a more authentic connection. Um, and so I'd say that's definitely one of the best skills that I can offer. Um, I think another thing is really expressing gratitude and appreciation, especially with parents, is a lot of things that go unnoticed. And there's a, this is something I'm working on right now, which is kind of appreciating my parents and my mom, especially more for little things that she does for me that normally I wouldn't notice. Because when things go unacknowledged, then resentment builds. And then when something happens, an argument kind of blows up more than it normally would. So if you're 
creating space within your day to be like, hey, I really appreciate that you did this for me. I see that you made this effort and thank you. That helps strengthen the relationship a lot too. So really just trying to make your baseline of connection and the relationship stronger so that when you do have arguments, there's more of a foundation, things don't crumble as easily. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, um, you know, when it comes to validation, <clears throat> I can totally understand with what you're saying. And it almost, because, you know, my parents, not that they don't validate me, it's that they don't understand because they grew up in a generation where mental health is not really talked about. And if it was, no one knew anything about it. So, you know, sometimes I am now noticing that I have to validate my own self, you know, when it comes to my so own issues. When, yeah. When you're able to kind of get that validation and that love and care from yourself, of course we need support systems to lean on. We need people to keep us grounded and connected because that's what you need as humans. But when you're able to get things like validation and love and care from yourself, you're able to give a lot more to other people. And it's a lot, it's a lot harder to kind of get hurt and feel that sense of rejection when your needs don't get met. And so it's, it really makes you a lot stronger as a person when you're able to practice things like self-validation and self-care um, and self-love. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want to kind of, you know, dive in a little bit to your teen uh, experience with these behavior modifications, because I think that's such an important part of your story. You did probably touch on it a little bit well, before, but mm -hmm. um, I want to know, and this is something that we might end with, we'll see, but I want to know, because I can talk to you for hours. <laughs> um, I want to know, like, what was that experience like? Because I saw the uh the the episode with daisy and mm -hmm. that month that she went through hell and back like her life story is pretty insane yeah. you know um so i just want to know like what was that uh what was that like that for you to be able to experience those that that trauma because it must have been pretty pretty insane yeah, I think it's it's really interesting um, because when you're kind of in that environment, you're completely isolated in a bubble for a really long period of time. I was there for 14 months and it wasn't until after almost like a year after I left that I really started kind of realizing kind of the extent to which things had impacted me and kind of understanding um, that even just just because it's called treatment doesn't necessarily mean that it's effective or evidence-based and just because that I was told that it was part of my work or that it was helpful didn't necessarily mean that it it was the right decision for me and that kind of stuff and so I think that's one thing to kind of point out is that when these kids are in these programs for extended period of periods of time and isolated and and put in this bubble it's hard to realize what's going on because everything around you is telling you that this is right and this is okay. Um, and that message is just being drilled in over and over and over again. Um, and especially there are some programs which where kids have unfortunately passed away due to neglect or physical injuries. Um, and there's others where they just have suffered physical abuse and in situations where there's isolation and emotional abuse, that's where it's like a lot harder to kind of draw the lines and, and understand what, what you're going through and kind of navigate that and cope through it. And so for me, when I was um, in, a, in a treatment program for over a year, I was talking to my parents maybe once a week at the most, and I had no contact with anyone from home. So every single part of my life was this program. And so I think that's something really important to know is how isolated and in a, and in, and in a bubble you are. Um, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And that's, that's the thing when it, when it comes to some of these treatment facilities, especially for young adults or kids, especially, you know, 
some are some are effective and and some are not. Um, I heard in uh, Alexis's interview that you experienced like you saw like a girl molested someone or something. Tell me what happened there, if you're willing to. <laughs> yeah. So um, this happened uh, multiple times at the program that I attended, but um, as far as like navigating relationships between the girls, again, super gray area, um, and it's kind of hard for staff to oversee that. Um, and so in this situation, um, one of the girls was molested by her roommate. Um, and the way it was handled was super questionable in that the girl that molested the other roommate wasn't moved out of the room. The girl that had been molested had to sleep on the couch for a week just because she couldn't be in that room with that other girl. Um, and then when they were kind of navigating how to proceed with the situation, um, myself and Daisy and a few of the other girls that were there, um, it was kind of put on us to kind of help her dive into the work and really start um, start getting on the right path. And so then they tried to room her with us. And so it's it's those situations really kind of, I think are important to shine a light on how hard it is to advocate for yourself in those situations. Because again, you're a patient, you're a kid, you have no contact with your parents um, and you don't really have a lot of control over these situations. So trying to take care of your own physical and mental safety can be very, very difficult. Yeah, yeah, and I'm very sorry you got, you got to go through that because a child, especially how old you guys were, mm -hmm. a child, does not have the maturity or the willpower to be able to know how to handle someone who just molested somebody. I mean, yeah, and I that's, think that's not something a child has the power to do. Yeah, and especially in treatment when you're really diving into all this deep work and rewiring your core beliefs and just trying to stay stable yourself to have the burden of someone else's mental health treatment and their their work is really not something that you can ex expect from another teenager um, or adult when you're in, in, in treatment. And so it's just definitely a boundary that shouldn't be crossed. Yeah. And, and that's another thing too. Boundaries are so important. <clears throat> Boundaries are extremely, extremely important. And I really think that it's something that needs to be taught from young. And so um, I was just curious, how would you go about showing someone boundaries, whether it's friendship, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a boyfriend, a girlfriend, whatever, how would you go across showing someone, okay, this is who I am. This is what I do. And this is, this is me because um, I don't know if you ever heard of the podcast, OK, Sis. Mm -hmm. I love that podcast so much. And Scout. Yeah, I, on my I had Scout on my podcast. Yeah, Scout's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she always says that when it comes to her clients, she does not choose anybody who is going to take up 90% of her time. And I just think that is so cool that she that she does that. And so... I was wondering, how would you go and how would you go and set those boundaries uh, with somebody and be like, you know, this is who I am, but I mean, I'm willing to help you. This is who I am, but this is not a boundary that I want you to cross. Yeah. Um, so I just did an episode about relationships and boundaries. And one of the most important takeaways was that boundaries are are meant to protect you and not necessarily control the other person. So when you're setting a boundary, it's for your own physical, emotional health. And there is a skill in DBT, which just stands for Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, and that's what I did um, at Residential in Boston. And there, it's called Dear Man, and it's an acronym, and it stands for Describe, Express, Assert, Reinforce, Stay Mindful, um, appear confident and negotiate. And so this is kind of your walkthrough of how to advocate for something and get your objective met. 
So if you're going to set a boundary, say my brother keeps coming in my room and it's distracting me from my schoolwork and I want him to stop, I would walk through this acronym. And so I would start, I would describe the situation. And so like, hey, buddy, like you keep coming in my room when I'm doing schoolwork and I find myself very interrupted from the task I'm doing and it's hard to refocus. And I would express, I feel very frustrated um, when I get interrupted and I feel really stressed out and scared that I won't be able to get my assignments in on time because I'm not able to be productive. Um, I would assert and say, can you please knock before entering my room? And then I would want to have something in there that's reinforcing for him. And so I would say, um, if I'm able to get my homework done, I'm going to have time to play. My brother's younger than me, by the way. I'm going to have time to play with you tonight because I'm going to have more time because I finished everything I had to do. That's reinforcing for him. Um, and then I would stay mindful of the situation. What's his body language? What's his tone of voice like? Facial expressions? All of these things that can kind of clue me into how he's receiving this information, how he's feeling about it. I'm going to appear confident and I'm not going to be like, please, like, what do you think about this? Um, and be kind of like, I'm just going to stick to what I want to ask from him and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have body language and facial expressions and a tone of voice that reflects that. And if at the end of the conversation, I let him respond and he's like, well, I, it, I like really need to talk to you when I come into your room and it's an emergency, then we would kind of negotiate. And maybe I'd say, okay, Atticus, that's the name. You get three emergencies a week when you can come into my room, but there can't be any more than that, okay? And so like kind of going back and forth and finding a compromise that works for both of us. But using that acronym is a really, really effective way to advocate for a boundary to be set. Um, and it's just everything you need to do to set a boundary, set a boundary, assert something is in there and it's super effective. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. I, I love that. I, I love that, that whole method because, yeah. and that is something that every small business or every owner of a service, or in your case with family members, and in my case with family members should be doing because yeah, even like with with school i find myself whenever i'm like writing an email to like ask for an extension or ask what the homework is like using that acronym to get an objective met it's like it's perfect and so this is when i'm talking about like we need more education of skills in school this was part of your fourth grade curriculum people would be much more effective at advocating for things um and all that yeah yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. exactly. Now, um, to wrap up the show here, I always like to do a fun segment called wildcard. And what that is, I'm still kind of getting the hang of it. What that is, is you're fully sighted and I'm fully blind. So this is going to be fun. What this is, is you think of an object, any object, it could be anything, the moon, whatever, whatever comes to your mind. And I will try and describe it from not even seeing anything. Okay. Do I tell you what the object is? Yeah. Okay. The object is a camera. Wow. A camera. Um, I would say. Like a big one, like not like a phone camera. Cause that's like, but like, a, like a, I don't even know how to describe that point and shoot camera. Right. So, like, I would say that a camera would be, um, like, it would have a handle on it, and it would have a button, mm -hmm. which would be in the handle, and then you would push on it. It would be pretty, it would be pretty long. It'd be kind of like a cylinder, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it would be pretty, pretty, uh it would be like a cylinder and the button would be right on the, right on there. And yeah, it'd be pretty big. It'd be pretty bulky. I don't know. What the, what does a camera look like? Was that an accurate explanation? <laughs> yes. I would definitely say yes. There's like the lens, which is like the cylinder part. And then there's like the body of the camera, which is kind of like a rectangle. And then there's the button on normally like the left side on the top. And then maybe you have like a flash moment. It depends. And that would be like on the top. But yeah, a cylinder for like the lens and then a rectangle with a button for the body. 
Nice. So that was pretty accurate then. I would say very accurate. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> all right. Well, before we wrap up, where can people find you? Give me all the beats. <laughs> yeah. So um, you can listen to my podcast. She persisted on all listening platforms. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at, at she persisted podcast. And then you can also go to my website, she persisted podcast.com for all of my episodes, all of my social media information, email me like so many different points of contact and content there. So yeah. Wow. That's great. Well, thanks so much for hanging out with me. And I know that this episode is going to impact so many people and you're just so freaking inspirational and thank you. you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad we got to sit down. You asked amazing questions. Oh, thank you. Wow. Thanks. All right. Well, Thanks so much. Of course. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode today. I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you want to send me an email, please feel free to do so at robieregz24 at gmail.com. And if you'd like to send me a voice message, please download the free Anchor app, search for The Way I See It on Anchor, and click the voice message button. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk soon.